thank you so much Hannah for joining me um I really appreciate you taking time out to chat and yeah really excited to to hear and dive into the topic I mean media is something that's kind of always fascinated me I, I work in kind of comms and PR outside of this and so I kind of work adjacent alongside it and I've never really taken the plunge into into kind of full journalism the podcast is like my little dipping the toe into it um but I'm a huge um kind of proponent of it and I, I think it's it's obviously such an important part of a, of a democracy but on a kind of personal level when I look at the media kind of landscape in the UK I I don't have a lot of sense of kind of kind of hope and and, and I kind of I'm quite critical of it which which we can kind of get into I remember reading the stat like last year and it was about kind of journalism and the fact that like 94% of journalists are white. The representation in urban areas, particularly in sort of like London and Birmingham and stuff, um, you know, ethnic minorities are massively underrepresented in the in the industry. And it also kind of resonated with something that I read on your website, which was about the fact that when you started your career, there were five black people at the office that you were working, two were security guards, two were cleaners and there was yourself. I just wonder if you could talk us through kind of how that was starting out in the media sector as as a black woman and and what your kind of experience was. Yeah, absolutely. I would definitely say it was a very optimistic one starting out in it. And, you know, not bad considering I'm graduating from Goldsmith University in London. And two weeks after my ceremony, I'm sat at the BBC about to start my first day. Um, of my traineeship, which lasts a year, it's paid, it's about 15 grand for the, for the year, mm-hmm. um, you know, but considering the fact that this is my first job, it's great. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah, exactly. Coming out like a, as, as a student, exactly, um, you know, and just the relief in knowing that there was a good level of security, so it was very, very optimistic, and it's weird though, because I find that that journey towards actually starting that job, there wasn't any uh, thoughts or question or, or doubts as to the realities of working in the media industry because you will not actually know until you're in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, it's the first thing that I have noticed when I entered in the building. And as you rightly said, yeah, there were five of us in the building um, that were black. And again, still being quite optimistic and thankful to be there, be in that position, but at the same time, not giving myself the pressure to be the advocate for change, just mm-hmm. because I was another one in the building, yeah. who there are a very little number of. So I was very much so aware, um, but literally just saw it as me being passionate about working in this industry. I'll be very honest, not that I didn't pay any mind, I'm grateful to have been connected with and many people in the organization from a black and minority ethnic group. Um, and we had conversations and I would event, I would um, attend diversity events. But it just, I don't know, I, I feel like I was almost reflecting the attitudes a bit of everyone else in the building who were incredibly kind, never mm-hmm. faced any silly, misogynistic, racist remarks or anything. But it was just sort of like there was an elephant in the room and we all saw it was there, but no one spoke about it, myself. Mm. And do you think from the time that you started um, your career and now, do you think that that's kind of changing, that the, the, the norms and kind of perceptions are, cha- are being challenged? A million percent, yes. And I think it's just come with, with time and exposure because I moved around the BBC a lot. 
So, okay, the first year, okay, I'm working in this building, it's a particular radio station that air out to particular communities. I'm sure if I move into the big glossy building, which is just next door, mm -hmm. um, and work on, you know, other programs, then it will be different. No, nope. one year later, nothing, two years later, three years, four years, five wow. years, six years. Wow, yeah. Okay, and I, and um. I think that's when I just got that kind of aha moment, if we're calling it that. I was working um, in a radio department that mm -hmm. um, produced really amazing podcasts. And the really interesting thing is that a majority of these podcasts are actually aired to international audiences, many of them where English isn't their first language. Mm -hmm. um, but if you actually look around that production room, you'd be in absolute shock because it basically just reminds me of the important saying that media can't reflect society if society is not seen in the media. Yeah. And that was literally it. It's not in any way undermining the incredible work that they produce as journalists, but the representation was absolutely obsolete. It did mm -hmm. not exist. And I remember having a chat with an editor of a program who said, wow, like a majority of the audience has listened to these programs are in Africa. Mm -hmm. Don't you just find it embarrassing that I'm literally the only black person here and I'm not even, you know, here for a long amount of time. I'm only here on a six-month attachment. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I'm, I'm kind of glad that I, having that chat with him, it was a very comfortable conversation and it was something that he was aware of. And I don't know if it's because he lives like near my area, which is fairly quite diverse. I don't know. I just felt very open. I live in Stoke Newington. I felt very open to, you know, kind of have that chat with him. And from that moment on, I thought, you know what? 0.2% of journalists in the UK are black. 0.2%. Mm. Um, and if I'm not seeing that in my physical spaces, I'm very grateful for platforms like social media, where I've connected with incredible black journalists that work at the New Statesman, both. Yeah. independent, literally any publication, I'm able to actually find someone there. And I thought, if I can't find that in my physical space, why not create it um, through We Are Black Journals? And that's where I would say, I'm not going to call it activism. Maybe it is, who knows? But that's where my really strong passion for it started to develop and grow stronger and stronger because I wanted to, rather than turn it into a debate platform, I wanted to create more visibility of the amazing black journalists that there are. Because mm -hmm. when I see that visibility, it makes me believe bigger than the 0.2%. And it's paving the way for aspiring journalists to be. Because nothing is more sad than, you know, someone DMing me on Twitter, Instagram, or meeting me in person. And the first question they're asking is how many black people work at this organization? As opposed to, I'm really passionate about X, Y, and Z. Yeah. So there's already a, a block factor before they even set their toes in, and that is problematic. That should not be something that's in someone's mind, unfortunately it is in an industry like British journalism. It's so, it's so interesting that you said about um, the fact that you didn't actually experience the kind of, you didn't experience kind of racism or sexism in the way that, that I think I wrongly assumed that maybe you would have, you know, going into these industries and that mm -hmm. everyone was supportive, but that you were still aware that you were the only 
um, black person or that you know in in a kind of journalism field and I think often you know as a woman sometimes you have that as well when you go into a space and you realize you're there's not a, it's not an, like there's automatic sexism or racism it's just that you're aware that there's that you're di- you're different to, to other people I wanted to, to pick up on on something you said about kind of the fact that representation and having more diverse voices I completely agree is 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 an important way to to change that industry I wondered what you thought about um the fact that you know we are getting more diverse voices and we are getting more representation I think at this point not enough but but more but the fact that you know we still have these massive corporations that own media so I think it's like three three companies own 90% of national news and it's about six for, for local news how do you think that that dynamic plays into into who gets into media and and what kind of stories are told yeah, excellent question. Um, it's really tough because it it plays so much of an influence on how the narrative is told. And of course, a lot of power lies between, you know, these bosses that own 90% plus of it. And sometimes it's not even just that, it's just looking at when British journalism, I would say, began in 1927. Um, please correct me if I'm wrong, just read it somewhere in the BBC a few years ago. And the fact you probably know more than I do. <laughs> <laughs> we'll go for that date. That 19... No, yeah, like, I'm pretty sure, yeah. So 1927 was when the BBC was founded by an old, rich white man. And when it began and started developing, those were the exact same people that we saw old quite wealthy men who happened to be white. And it wasn't until decades later where we saw the first, you know, Asian presenter on this, or the first black woman to present on the news, um, on radio, Maurice Stewart. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't until decades and decades and decades later where we saw these changes. So I'm not saying in a, in a disheartening way, but I think it's important to realize that I'm working in an industry that wasn't, systemically built for me mm-hmm. or people that look like me yeah um you know and and oddly sadly what a century later we're still kind of seeing that in many of these spaces so I'm not saying in any way that the beginning like how it started in the beginning is how it all will always be of course not because mm-hmm. we would be in very very deep trouble if that was still the case, because again, it goes back to what I was saying about media reflecting society, that wouldn't be the case, because we need to tap into and reach out to all communities. That is literally the job of a journalist, to inform, to educate, to inspire, etc. So it's not so much of a shocking surprise that when it comes to these media bosses, these are the outcomes that we're seeing. I think it's just perpetuating the systemic issues that we've seen from the beginning of British journalism. And we're kind of seeing that even in, you know, organizations like the Society of Editors, um, you know, the former boss and the comment that he made that the UK is not, UK's media is not institutionally racist. And we know why he refused to say that because of the bosses that are washing on him and, you know, how bad it will look. So it is a very worrying kind of ownership you know, looking out for each other rather than just literally looking at the facts. And I remember when all of that happened, where um, Victoria Derbyshire was questioning him, um, and she's 
so amazing because she handled that so well. Um, but what I found so interesting about that time, so when that interview came out with uh, him and Victoria Davishere, I remembered that he invited me to speak on a panel six months before this went down. And mm. the title of it was, um, let me actually get my tweet up because I think it just really shows how, you know, far we have to go just in terms of understanding when there's an issue somewhere and learning how to properly address it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think especially given his, you know, place of um, power, he's aware of this. He's aware yeah. of the 0.2%. Exactly. So that is what kind of convicted him to invite me to this because he was aware of it. So, uh, yeah, so I tweeted in March, Ian Murray from Society of Editors actually invited me onto a panel last year, which I was unable to attend. Guess what the panel was about? Diversity in the newsroom. If the time for talking is over, what action should be taken to achieve tangible results? Oh, my God. And then six months later, this is happening, you know? This is happening. So it's super, super interesting. Like, I still have the email and everything, and he was so passionate about it, but I think I had, like, a personal engagement or something. And Mm. honestly, maybe it was a blessing in disguise. So they they know, but due to some sort of unwritten code and sticking in very traditionalist, um, institutionally racist mindset, that is what, kind of um, stops them from speaking out against um, you know, staggering the low results that we're seeing um, with diversity in the newsrooms, mm-hmm. in British journalism, and why it's very, very, very slow progress, but yeah. it shouldn't be. Exactly. Wow, that's so interesting. Nice that you still have the, the email and the receipts from that to say, hey, six oh, yeah. months ago, you were interested and, and, and passionate about this. And now, and, and sometimes now. that shows with those panels, right, that they are they are not even taking action, right? They're just, again, kind of showcase showboats for, hey, we're doing this diversity panel and we have, you know, these people to talk. But like, are any of the actions actually taken taken from there? It's, it's probably exactly. not kind of given what happened. Yeah. I wanted to just quickly touch on and, and talk about what what you think the the impacts or effects are of not having a diverse and, and not having a, a kind of a journalism sector that reflects the public it serves. Do what kind of effects do you think that has on on the way that news is is, is structured, the the kind of stories that are told or are not told um in that case? Stupid mistakes are made. You know, when Kobe Bryant rest his soul passed away. I remember where I was at this time um, and I was just so shocked and I remember one thing that I was really, really looking forward to watching was the 10 o'clock news because in the UK it had broken maybe around like 6 or 7pm or so. So I thought, okay, so the next report is going to be the 10 o'clock and the image that was used was not of Kobe Bryant. It was of LeBron James. So my immediate thought is, what on absolute earth? Who the heck was in that production team? Um, and honestly, what I mean by diversity, it's it just, it's knowing, from that mistake made, it's knowing that everyone in that editorial team probably thought the same or from the same background. Yeah. Yeah. The only difference, maybe some differences of opinion. 
for someone in a production team, 10 o'clock news at night, I can say, because again, I've worked for that organization, there's not going to be less than six people in that team. And you mean to tell me that about six people could have potentially seen that and couldn't distinguish one black basketball player from another. And we've seen it so many times. We've seen it in so many different organizations. We've seen one black member of parliament being mistaken for another. And it is very, very mm -hmm. jarring to the point where people that don't really have an understanding of how media works, they literally think that they're doing it on purpose when they make yeah. these mistakes to describe black people as a monolith almost. But in actual fact, from someone that's been on the inside, I can clearly say that that editorial team just didn't educate themselves enough, were very lazy um, and were very incompetent. And that is so problematic because, again, the kind of media you're shaping shows that you just don't really have a lot of knowledge and that further reflects on the organisation. Yes, with these mistakes being made, apologies are put out there and etc. But if someone like me was in that team, and I'll tell you straight, Wallace, I don't think I've ever watched a basketball game in my life. From no. an American football game. I don't think I've ever watched one from start to finish. I don't know much about it. But because of communities that I tapped into, based on my racial background, which can be an advantage in this sense, I can find someone, whether that's someone on Instagram, whether that's someone on social media, I can, I can definitely find someone to verify whether this is indeed Toby Bryant or not. Yeah. So it's just mistakes like that that just, again, it further shows how far we have to go. Exactly. I think yeah. it also happened this week, didn't it, with, um, I think it was Little, Little Mix. There was like a newspaper front page and I think Jade and Leanne got mixed, they mixed up. Um, Leanne, I think Leanne's pregnant and, and Perry's pregnant. Again, I don't really know right. much about yeah. Little Mix, but if I was writing a story on them, I'm sure I'd freak, there's three of them. It's not as if, you know, and two of them are pregnant. So it's it's good to clarify which one. And obviously they mixed up the two, like mixed, mixed I think Jade's mixed, mixed race and obviously Leanne's as well. So they've mixed up those two. And you think every time it happens, I, I'm like you, like, if I'm not used to an area, like I, I don't know much about basketball, but if I was writing about that, I would be so clear that it was the right person I was showing. Or oh. I think we saw it recently at the at the Oscars, right, with Daniel Kluwe, he was being asked a question about another um, black actor and the, and the journalist like played it off as if like she was actually asking yeah. that question. That's and I think that yeah. would make me more, more kind of like cautious and more like, okay, how do I get this right? But the fact that that is not built into the mentality of the editing team, is it's it's kind of laziness but it's laziness about certain topics and so that's when the kind of like yeah. the kind of bias and subconscious bit like must feed into into the work you do and I think it must mm -hmm. as you said like break down trust with communities you know I think for black communities and other ethnic minorities communities this happens so much and I think you must get to a point where you're just tired and you're like well I'm not gonna trust yeah. that news source anymore or look at that or watch watch the kind of news um, exactly. You couldn't have said it any better. Yeah, if anything, you just further extended um, my my point. Lack of trust. And why are these mistakes made about particular issues? Why is that the case? About marginalised communities. And it could just, it can make people think, be paranoid, think that these organisations have some sort of agenda, live off propaganda, or are doing it for more attention. So many things can fall up in your mind. Because at like... As a news source, people trust you to just tell them about everything that's happening. And if you lose that trust, people will look elsewhere. 
And it's as simple as that. So there's only so long until these mistakes um, can happen. Because again, it's just providing a, a further reason as to why diversity and inclusion is not a box-ticking exercise. It really exactly. isn't. It has the potential and it has the power to change things. Yeah. It really does. Definitely, yeah. I want to move on now and talk a little bit. This is the part of the podcast where I try to be a bit more hopeful and and <laughs> and think about yeah. you know kind of paint a optimism. picture optimism. Woohoo! Um, after you know discussing kind of what the industry looks like like now, I want to try and talk about like what it could look like and what it should look like, particularly in terms of kind of you know a fair and equal media. Do you, when we when we think about what a fair and equal media would look like like in the future but like in your mind what what does that look like I was thinking both from like as a journalist when you're in that sector and working in it how, how would that look like but then also um in terms of the relationship you have with the public and 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 maybe that trust element there as well you know what's crazy I I'm very grateful to be in a, a position where I've worked with incredible journalists um who I don't even need to question why they work at organizations like the BBC because they are so good at their jobs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's not even why I would change because I want to work around really good working professionals. I just want to see the audience that we're speaking to in the spaces that I work in. Mm-hmm. It's literally like that. So, you know, um, there is a common thing where, let's say you're working on a story in the Africa department and then there's breaking news about what's happening in the continent but you know on that news round on that news ground um on on the bottom floor no one really no one can find anyone that can speak about that story because there's literally no one around them um and I remember it was like a recurring thing where I would see someone frantically run upstairs and say ah great okay um I can see more people that are representative of the story that I want to work on please, I, I really, you know, need to talk to you to educate me on what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, that's great. That's important that people are, you know, speaking directly to the ones that are educated about it. But in an ideal world, that's someone that you could just turn to your right yeah. and speak to about it. You know exactly. what I mean? Yeah, totally. it's, it's not even a crazy transformative thing. It's literally just having our audiences in our newsrooms. And I know in international news where I spent a lot of my time, um, also where I felt very comfortable, is where I would regularly see that. Um, but even, you know, societies like many, many uh, parts of the UK that are incredibly very, very diverse, mm-hmm. um, what are those media spaces like? Not so great. So that would be it. It's not even anything, it's not even like a Martin Luther King speech type where everything, yes. but just simply I would just I would love that no I think that makes a lot of sense and I think what's really interesting when you use a comparison like that I always think about whether someone would say there was like a massive breaking story in like Germany or France or something like Mm. there would be much more of a kind of push to find someone who I think often we we decide who's what kind of news and what kind of experts we want based on okay we need to have someone who knows about France but when it happens in 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 this country in Africa for example we often say oh we'll get someone who knows about Africa as a continent but like it's it's huge and massive and the diversity you know just within the kind of countries there and in the political landscape 
is so huge and I always find even the fact that sometimes people are called like Africa correspondents I'm like we have like specific like French correspondents yeah yeah I wonder why we allow it to happen on on that kind of level and not to you know I imagine there's people who aren't from those areas that do have a lot of expertise but for some reason we we allow that to equate versus like you know we have kind of also like the U.S. we often have like U.S. political correspondents or economic you know mm-hmm. it's it's where there we put the go. kind of money and resources and time yeah. that's a really really interesting point I wanted to kind of um yeah. just also talk about how how you you view kind of bringing the public into news and whether that's something you think is important to rebuilding that trust I I bring it up because I know that there are some media models I'm thinking of stuff like Tortoise who are doing these kind of like open Mm. newsrooms where they invite people into into to kind of discuss and I've been to a few myself and and it's supposed to be like an open forum for people discussing I wonder how much you think that's a useful part of and, and and is going to be useful going forward to grow that trust back or whether it's just kind of another sort of um like showcasing thing like another panel idea where it's like it it doesn't actually change the kind of dynamic in in the newsroom i think you know tortoise have quite a few friends that have worked there and i've been to their events as well and um it's nice to sort of tap in to what they're doing and how they're building a different way of journalism and i think it's it's great it's a really great initiative but funny enough i think of obviously the people i'm closest to there from a black minority ethnic group and have not stayed up to over a year before leaving and finding somewhere elsewhere. Mm -hmm. So it's a tough one because I get what they're trying to do in terms of shaping a different way to have news, but it's still the same. Yeah, yeah. It's the reflection of of the same faces that I would see elsewhere. But the organisations that I do look at and admire Mm -hmm. are those in very senior exec positions that want to become an ally because I literally think it's gotten to that point now now oh I'm interested to read a book on diversity or oh I want to know about this or that but literally being an ally and it's like it's quite a strong term isn't it because it's a commitment it's a commitment as an ally to support a marginalized group Mm -hmm. to be a black journalist in the UK immediately makes you marginalised. Yeah, exactly. So I think that's where we are now, where someone literally says, I want to be an ally. Because number one, you're understanding there's a problem that exists. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a very huge decline of people that look like me in this industry. And you want to work towards bringing in more faces like mine in this industry, mm-hmm. respectively. Not just yeah. because I'm black and etc., but I've worked hard as many of my white counterparts. But because of the way the system is built, I just can't get there as my white counterparts can. Mm-hmm. You're aware of that, and you want to support me and point me in, in the way of opportunities for me to get in these spaces. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. And and do you think that are you seeing that happen? In, in big organizations do you think that I'm thinking particularly over the last you know year particularly with Black Lives Matter and stuff mm. which you know mm. unfortunately for, for many people was a wake-up call which it, it shouldn't have been because people should have been much mm-hmm. more you know already awake on that issue but was do you think that you're seeing that kind of willingness to really put action into place to, to make these things happen? 
Yeah, great question. I think um, it definitely created something that I've never seen before personally on social media. It's mm-hmm. literally coming up to yeah, this time last year where racism was a global talking point. Um, it wasn't just black people that I saw speaking about issues of injustice and racism. There were loads of white people, um, working professionals, uh, brands and organizations that are predominantly white, again, really speaking openly about the fact that they're not only sad about what's happening, but they're, they're anti-racist. Mm-hmm. So this is why, not that these terms are new, but we're having to say them a lot more now because recent things that we've been doing haven't been working. So that's why there's been this push to be an ally. There's been this push to be Mm anti-racist. People that are not marginalized need to speak for us. Um, And I've seen that in the sense of, you know, uh, money being donated, time being donated, investing in resources. And funnily enough, that time was a really big turning point for We Are Black Journalists because we were getting tagged and loads of posts about the work that we're doing, mm-hmm. you know, celebrating mm-hmm. and connecting black journalists and etc. That is when, you know, we experience allyship for the first time. Yeah. Where, you know, fair enough, we, we did have a, a fairish number of people uh that were already following us that were mm-hmm. non black, mm-hmm. um, which was great. But at this time we got so many uh, again, non black people, executive producers and editors and controllers of programs and bosses mm-hmm. of these big platforms saying that they would love to help, they'd like to get involved, or many would just be quiet and just hit the follow button. So it was that that inspired me to want to create our first ever virtual event, uh, which was in June 2020, and it was on allyship and how to become one. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. And it's great to see the conversations that have been had. It also inspired our mentoring scheme. So we are Black Genesis as a mentoring scheme, working from different organizations, whether it's Time Out Magazine, Bloomberg, the Bureau of Investigative Journalists, ITV, so people that have gotten in contact with us on a mental black journalist within our network as well, um, which is brilliant. It's also great to hear that through us, some black journalists have been hired for particular roles that have been advertised. That's great. Um, yeah. So it's really great to know that, um, you know, many people use us as a sort of directory to tap in because they Mm -hmm. want to change the narrative. They're tired of seeing the same faces. Yeah, no, that's incredible. And I think what all you've said there, and I was about to ask, like, how do we get there? I think that kind of mentorship programs, those, you know, actually showing up to events and saying, how can I help and what can I be involved with? Even that offer of help, if you're from a really high up position, I imagine is is huge. And, And being able to have that person that you can go to and say like, look, you know, we have these amazing journalists that are coming up. How can you support them and, and what can you do? We can talk more about We Are Black Journals because I want to make sure that we can tap into all that you do and how people can people can get involved. Um, I wanted to talk about if you think there are any other initiatives, either, um, I don't know, changes in, in legislation or policy that you think would be integral to helping this, this shift happen. So helping to get more faces that look like the public in, into the sector. Mm-hmm. Um, applying pressure on the news group board. Okay. So mm-hmm. literally the, the ri- ridiculously senior people that are practically like HR. So maybe just changing some of the policies and you know the the, the legislative rules and etc. Because there's always like a section, isn't there, with many organisations about diversity and inclusion or whatever. But actually 
I don't know. Because the BBC is the only place where I've spent most of my career, to be honest. Like, they're only based on, you know, the criteria of how they, they mark people. I know that when they're interviewing someone, like, interviewing mm-hmm. someone to, that wants to work there, the board has to be, um, there has to be diversity in that. So it should be one man, one woman, um, or disabled, or someone from a black minority ethnic group. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry, that same pressure needs to be applied on the people that you're interviewing. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. because one day the person that you're interviewing may be on the other side and maybe on the the role of being on a board to interview other people. Um, so I feel like there needs to be some sort of policy. I don't know if every 20 or 30 people that are interviewed, at least a third or something. I don't really like quantifying things because we're people. Mm-hmm. We're all mm-hmm. individuals. Um, but at least a third of them to be from a black minority ethnic group. And if that is not something that is reflected in the final selection process, then you need to keep digging further. Otherwise, you're just going to keep on repeating the same cycle again and again and again. So I definitely think that pressure needs to be applied in order to ensure that that just doesn't happen. Yeah, and I think I agree with you that quotas, I find them really... The, the number thing it, it frustrates me because as you said like it's people but I think we need to do the kind of quota thing for a while to then for the industry to change and then we won't kind of need them as much if that makes sense like I think we have to just say yeah. right for every as you said and this should be across the board I think in, in all organizations is that you know for every 20 people we need a third to be from a black and ethnic minority minority group and then mm-hmm. eventually once those people as you said filter up and they're the ones interviewing we probably and hopefully won't need that but it seems to be the only solution without it's quite crass but it seems to be the only solution that we have I wanted to also talk a little bit more about we are black journals and how people can get involved for for young black journalists how can they get involved and and what do they kind of get from the network and 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 what do you kind of want from them and then also as for people who who are not black journalists and who are maybe just want to get involved how can they support the work that you're doing yeah, thank you. Um, I would definitely say black journos, aspiring black journos, join our community. And by our community, it's literally, you know, black journalists and those that are aspiring to work in the industry, because we just want you to feel uplifted and we want you to see that visibility, that your face, your voice, but most importantly, your talent and passion is what um, makes you rightfully uh, belonging in this industry even though there aren't many people that look like us. We have a mm-hmm. newsletter that goes out twice a month. We have events. Uh, we had a lot of virtual events, but thankfully there will be physical events taking place this year as well. We're having a social in the summer. We're building a Telegram group um, where people can, you know, chat and etc. We're quite big on social media as well. We're always an email away, but we're actively building our community. We're open to ideas and suggestions, but the most important thing is the visibility for you to see that. For those who are non-black journalists, it's essentially us all working towards the same thing. If you want your newsrooms to be more diverse, then you join our community where you can be exposed to the incredible network of almost 300 black journalists that we have speak to um, and are still discovering, which is amazing. I hate that I've said discovering as if it's sort of like a rare pink um turtle that you've seen um you know in the middle of south london or something not at all and i think again it's just providing that visibility it is so 
refreshing to know that off the top of my head. I would lose count of the amount of black journalists that I have come across and connected with. It's just further creating that visibility. And if you are here for that, then you're someone that we'd 100% love to be in our community. Yeah. And I think it doesn't, for anyone who, you know, for anyone who's non-black and wants to support, like there's no excuse not to. You have a network to tap into there and that you can reach out to. And I think also it's important to also say, like, if you don't know exactly what to do, like maybe you can help and support. And and, and it's just that first initial conversation and saying, like, I'm here. I want to be involved. I want to be an ally. Like, how do we do that? That sounds amazing. Well, I will definitely what we'll do is we'll make sure to share resources and how you can be a network on the on the podcast um, recordings and just wanted to say thank you so much for chatting that was so interesting and I like the idea that you know we we don't have to do a massive amount to make those changes like just seeing those people around you in the newsroom will allow those mistakes not to happen and we will you know gradually see that change but it's not like a huge leap into the future and it could happen today if everyone who is listening and everyone who you know is in that space takes action and, and is involved with that so thank you so much Hannah I, that was a great chat and um, just yeah lovely lovely to chat with you um, as always if you've enjoyed the podcast and want to get in touch um, I'm on Instagram at Feminist Futures uh, podcast and on Twitter at Podcast Futures uh, thank you and speak to you next week <laughs>